today on From A to Ziggy. I'm Lapura. Welcome to From A to Ziggy. This is the podcast in which we listen to every single David Bowie song in alphabetical order. My name is Thomas. I am Travis. And today we're listening to I'm Lapura from 1991's Tin Machine 2 by the band Tin Machine, not David Bowie. Worry not, podcast listeners, you have not been misled. This is still a David Bowie podcast. We just happen to be listening to Tin Machine songs this week. And in this case, Amlapura, an amazing song, Mm kind of like the last one, but even more so, and uh, I'll tell you why. I love this song. You like this one better than the last one, huh? Way better. I like the song, but I was more of an amazing guy. Is that right? Well, you this are an amazing all, guy. I am an amazing guy. <laughs> no, this is... How long is that joke going to last? It's never get old. <laughs> gonna, I've just literally made it twice. We're going to be on Queen Bitch and still doing that joke. <laughs> Not knocking the song, though. Still a very, very good song. Much, much more atmospheric than the last one. Yeah, yeah. From the very start, it begins with this kind of uh, seagull-sounding guitar yeah. going on. The sort of feedback going on with Reeves Cabral's guitar. I love the uh, the acoustic guitar. I love the, s- the singing, David's voice in the song. Apparently he, the producer, recounts the story of how he sang it again, sang the lead vocal slightly flat intentionally to, get us, to make it sound more sad. And the producer, Tim Palmer, he said he was very impressed with that kind of pitch control. Like, just to make it just slightly... That's, it's like a semitone a really flat. impressive thing to do. Yeah. And it has that sort of off feeling to it. If you're not... If you don't know when you're listening to it. Like, before I read this, I, I wouldn't have known what it is that sounds so off about it. But there's that. Yeah. You know that, and it's just... It's, it really is impressive. And I thought vocally, it also sort of reminded me of some of the stuff on Man Who Sold the World. Where, at least in the verses kind of had like a early 90s by way of late era Beatles kind of cadence to it. Like uh, the rhythm of the words? Or yeah, the, the just the way, the way, the, the imagery and the way the words flowed out. Like not necessarily pitch-wise or anything like that, but like it's that like, hey, hey, and then these like crazy images of this sea town. And it felt very, yeah, like early 70s Bowie by way of the 90s. He does something in this song that I've, I'm becoming more aware of the more I listen to Bowie, like, critically, giving it close listens. But he does this thing where he, his lyrics don't follow necessarily the same rhythmic pattern from verse to verse. He'll expand and contract phraseology to just, like, cram more words in and make it sound really uh, hectic, chaotic, or really rushed, or he'll broaden it out. You know, I kind of had started picking up on that too, but didn't really know how to put it into words. Yeah. Yeah. Like he'll fit more words into like a bar in one verse versus another. But he does this a lot. He does this even in older songs too. Um, So it's got all this imagery of the tall ships and Java, island island life, temples and uh, spices, the spice trade, the Dutch spice trade and guns and things going on. Do you know anything about the story of the, about the song? So I did do some reading into it. So apparently it was a place that he had stopped at 
in Indonesia during some downtime and the previous Tin Machine tour. And apparently it was like a, like a port town, like a sea town that was affected by a volcano. Right. Uh, it was, what, 63 was when the... Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. 63, there was this giant volcanic eruption. And I think like 1,500 people yeah. were killed. It was tragic. And Bali never, like Amalapura certainly never really recovered from this tragedy. He speaks of it as a, as a sacred dream space that's been soiled in some manner. That really is the imagery of the song. It's like grand boating town that's just like this beautiful vision of what a boating town was at that time. Like it definitely paints the pictures in your brain, especially for some, you know, I grew up in a town with a seaport from way back in the 17 and 1800s. So like I, I, I'm able to kind of picture that all pretty well. Um, granted, my town never got buried by any volcanoes. Um, but in this case, it does capture that like tragedy plus beauty. Yeah, there's that there's a, a very dark reference to the children, the dead children. Buried standing. Buried standing, yes. Like, uh, kind of evokes the imagery of Pompeii. Yeah. I, I love the chorus of this song. I dream of Amapura. Never saw in all my life a more shining jewel. I don't know, there's just something kind of fantastical or, or mystical sounding about that, about the stones and the jewels. And I think it's a combination of the, the imagery and the vocal performance and the arrangement, all of this comes together and just makes this a really affecting song. And I think rightfully so, because uh, this is, of course, like I said, it's in Bali. And, you know, after Bowie died in his will, he left it, his last wishes, he left directions to spread his ashes in Bali in a Buddhist ceremony. I'm not sure, but I read somewhere that uh, not even family was present. It's just a very low-key, like... God, how the hell did he do all that? It really is just astounding how someone, like, so huge could, like, in life and in death, just avoid all of it. Like you were saying before, he just sort of steps out of the limelight. Yeah. Here he does it, again, exactly the same. Uh, died the way he lived. Yeah. Very private. Like, I feel like there must have been a, a, a part of David Bowie all the time when he would be watching TV and, you know, if you ever happened upon any kind of celebrity news and everything, and they'd be bitching about the natures of fame. You'd be like, I'm David freaking Bowie, and I could do it. Try. You can do it. If I could do it, you could do it. <laughs> Ziggy freaking Stardust, and I, I hide from everything. So some of you who are listening to this are going to discover, if you try to find this album on Spotify, that it can't be done. So you might find yourself on YouTube looking for it. And there's a great live video from 1991. And it, it is, it's as 1991 a video as you can get. Just these like quick cuts and weird shaky effects and everything goes black and white at times. And then there's the, like showing footage of monitors with the time stamps on it. And it's just like very, it's, it's like the producers of the credits from the real world did a music a live music video and it's David Bowie strutting around in white pants and no shirt just commanding the stage um, no shirt and a cigarette yeah it's so rock and roll and and yeah Reed's Gabrels has one of those like very popular at the time so guitars cool. with no headstock on it which always 
I never liked those. Like, I don't know, something about always, maybe because I just was raised on classic rock. I was just like, it should have a headstock on it. That's, ah. I always thought they were cool because it reminds me of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It is very Bill they and Ted's those, Excellent they Adventure. They get those futuristic guitars at the very yeah. end from the future. But, like, it's so quintessentially of its time. Unfortunately, the sound quality is kind of lacking. I think they probably were going really heavy on, on the reverb. So, I don't know, maybe it was the, if it was a sound mix or if it was just a classic case of the style of the song not suiting the venue well enough, where the sound is just way too spacey and too at like it, it, this song's even more atmospheric and open than amazing yeah it's like like this is the kind of song that sounds well it, it would sound much better played live in a small venue where it's got lots of stuff to reverberate off of and it's just kind of it doesn't have too much room to sprawl out when, but when you play in a large arena a lot of it gets lost and it just sounds muddled and just not right um which was a complaint someone posed to me not too long ago when I was too poor to go to Boston Calling and the Pixies were playing and it was outdoors and they're like, yeah, the sound suffered a lot from being outside. But you know, if you're a David Bowie, you're not going to play little small clubs just because the song might sound better. Well, no, that's the thing is the Tin Machine shows, I think, were in smaller venues. Were they in smaller venues? I believe so. I don't know this for sure. Oh, man, that sound man sucked. That, so listeners, that uh, terrible. send any corrections to podcast at FromMavisica.com. Maybe they're trying too hard to recreate the studio sound then with the effects that they were using. Maybe. Because it just, it didn't translate well, I thought. Speaking of the production, so one of the producers on this album was Hugh Padgham. So he produced a few albums from Genesis. He got the famous drum sound in uh, in the air tonight. Like that was oh, all him. Um, nice. And actually, that reminds me, so I, I, anyway. I scored out, I went to, to Boomerangs the other day. And, uh, That's and the, the local thrift store. Local thrift store. Walked out with a pretty good sized stack of records, and I, I I bring this up now because one of the ones that I found there was uh, Abacab, Genesis, ah, nice. um, which was a Hugh Padgham produced album. Uh, he also did uh, Ghost in the Machine, which is another album I have at home that I love. And then one of my he, he produced my major guilty pleasure. So he produced a, a 311 record, which at the time I didn't appreciate it because this was 1999, the album that he produced. And now understanding his body of work as an adult. Did they get Hugh Padgham to produce that? Like, they're not a critically liked band at all. Like, I, I, I own this when I tell people I like them. I have to justify it, and I understand that. But yeah, so he produced that. Um, did a lot of stuff in the 80s. Worked with Human League, Hall & Oates. Nice. Elton John, Paul McCartney, Psychedelic Furs, Tragically Hip, The Waitresses. Do that I Know What Boys Like song. Uh-huh. Yes, Frank Zappa, Brian wow. Wilson. So really runs the gamut. But he is kind of known for a lot of, a lot of reverb to, to create a lot of atmosphere. Did he do Tin Machine 1 as well? Tin Machine 1, no, it was produced uh, by Tin Machine and Tim Palmer, mm-hmm. um, who had worked with Robert Plant, Jason Mraz. <laughs> Hugh Padge- Padgham? Yeah. He worked on Tin Machine 2. Yeah. I didn't, oh, here we go. One Shot. Okay, so there was one song that was... Uh, it's just the one song. One it is shot. just the one song. I don't know. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to investigate more. Yeah, he's going to come up again on a more appropriate episode. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing, the interesting thing with Tid Machine 2, um, was it was subject to a bit of censorship. Oh, that's right. I have here the, the United States release. So there's, there's statues on the front, some naked dudes, and because we're 
a country of goddamn Puritans. Um, all the dongs are censored out. You can't handle that. Here in America, we can tolerate violence, but not sex. Yeah. And so someone has violently removed the sex organs from these inanimate objects. But it also speaks to the double standard in this country, because this came out around roughly the same time as Jane's Addiction's Nothing's Shocking. Oh, yeah. Which has topless girls on right. the cover. I mean, there is an alternate version that came out with, like, a, a cleaner cover. but the For sale at Walmart. Yeah. But the more widely circulated is the one with boobs on the cover, and that, that is not censored. Right. This album, Tin Machine 2, I don't think it was sold at Walmart anyway. Probably. Yeah, it might not have been. It's a pretty cool cover. It's, it's, there's a pretty cool design aesthetic here with all the statues, I guess, Greek statues. And then David Bowie has got what looks like the beginnings of his uh, I'm Afraid of Americans. Yeah, that is the, the birth of an early aughts goatee right there. Goatee and swept back, uh, spiked up hair. Um, Except here he is looking kind of like Ethan Hawke in the turtleneck and um, duster. Is that what that jacket's called? Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah, with um, the boots on and the glasses. Looking like Ethan Hawke. By the time he hits the 90s, like, it, it almost comes off like David Bowie as a time traveler, and he's just dressing in the style of that time so no one figures it out. And it's funny, so the... And, and if you want to blend in, look like David Bowie. Yeah. So it's funny that, he, like, on the, in the cover to this, he's starting to kind of ease into that I'm Afraid of Americans phase, because that was, of course, when he started collaborating with Trent Reznor, and one of the influences that's cited for Tin Machine 2, Reeves Gabrels was stating that at that time he was really into Pretty Hate Machine, no the Nine Inch Nails album. way. Right? Wow. Yeah, it's like more of that full circle. Bowie influences Trent Reznor, Trent Reznor comes back around and influences a David Bowie project, and then works with David Bowie again six years later. Right, and they work together. What else about Pamela Pora? Oh, yeah, right. So this is, uh, it's about Bali. It's about um, this place in Bali. And uh, there's, there's a line in here that now uh, is, has even more resonance because he says, uh, he talks about um, the funeral pyre and, and burning. I would burn you if you should die. So if you were to die, I would you know, do the right thing with your body. I would, I would burn it um, according to your wishes or whatever. But I would burn too. You know, it would kill me if you were to die. If you should lie upon that bamboo pyre, I would burn too. And now, and so he did, literally. He yeah. literally fulfilled that line. So it's got this this eerie kind of resonance now. Knowing, I mean, I feel like he must have done that uh, deliberately. You know, he must have had that in his mind, the germ of that of his last will in his mind as he was yeah, writing apparently this Apparently, that song. city really struck a chord with him. He, yeah, he he must have. Yeah, he, he loved Bali. He uh, re he bought an island. He bought a private. He had a private island. He had a um, a home on a on the island of uh, Mustique. It was profiled in Architectural Digest in 1992. He had this house that was built by a Swedish architect who reconstructed this Indonesian palace aesthetic, and the whole house is mostly inspired by Bali, Java. This, this very particular design. And in the photo spread, Bowie appears standing next to one of these really ornate doors dressed in a Balinese uh, garment. So yeah, he, like, he recreated the place to live in. And he loved it so much, that's, that's where his mortal remains ultimately ended up. 
It's funny because it's described as this this town that people don't go to unless they've hit every single other popular place in Bali. I have a feeling that it's going to get more popular. Yeah. That people are going to trek there, knowing knowing this, knowing that it has this connection. Good for them getting all the tourist dollars off of that. Yeah. Like it might be the next uh, Graceland. <laughs> you can hope. Yeah. That, that would be a good thing, right? Yeah. I mean, in a way, maybe would drive Bowie a little bit crazy to know right. that, but... Right. You know. Yeah. But I, I mean, I don't... This, this wasn't like a political statement that he was making. I think he just, you know, was genuinely in love with this place. He's yeah. not, you might say he's like trying. He he had this cause in mind or something to like reinvigorate the economy of this uh, depressed place. But I mean, he could do that any place. So yeah, I think he was just genuinely, just a love affair. Yeah, just genuinely in love with this place. Anything else about Amapura? I guess it bears mentioning that this was not a well-received album critically. Hmm. Did anyone say anything uh, in particular? There was a, um, a review in Q Magazine that on the cover stated the question, are Tin Machine crap? Um, what, I'm dying to know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Not terribly loved. Um, they felt the album didn't quite match up to the wonderfully overwrought but sadly underbought debut. See, I don't Based get that. On the, so this is really the only song I've been exposed to off of Tin Machine 2 so far. But I can see why some people would hear this compared to the last one and think of it as, okay, now these guys are really trying to beat this thing. Because there's nothing that pisses off critics more than a band that's trying to do anything. Yeah. It's got to feel effortless. And it, it... Well, this song, this, this album was less spontaneous. The first album was all things that were sort of, they were put together in jam sessions and they were recorded mostly in one take. And I think the second album is more composed. But you know what? I actually like the second album more than I like this, the first one. The first one is, it's cacophonous and uh, it's, it's hard and heavy, which is like really, you know, that's, there's something to be said for that. And there's a lot of good songs on there. But listening to it all at once is kind of an intense experience. Whereas Tin Machine 2 kind of has this different kind of flow to it. It's got songs like this and others, Betty Wrong, uh, You Belong in Rock and Roll. There's a lot of good stuff on this album. So whatever critics may say, I, I actually like Tim Machine 2 better. It's just some dude's opinions. Yeah, right. At the end of the day. I mean, who really cares what some dudes have to say about David Bowie? Yeah, you don't want to <laughs> listen to someone else's opinion about David Bowie to form your own opinions. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I don't know, anything else about this particular song? That's all I've got on this song. Great song. I I give this song, I think this is the first, I think this is the highest score I've given a song so far. It's, I'm going to give this one five roses around a Raja's mouth. Wow. I told you I love Even this higher song. than all the Mad Men. I love this song. Wow. I'll go, I'll go three and a half. Was it roses? Roses around a Raja's mouth. Roses around a Raja's mouth. And I don't know how much of that is just because... I listened more to the live version than the album version, and I was kind of maybe biased because I didn't love how it sounded. Still a very, very good song. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's very good a, song. It is. It took me a little while to get really into this album, but I took to this one quicker than I did Tin Machine 1. It's got a kind of sound to it where it, you have to let it wash over you. It needs time to do that, I think. 
I feel like it, it, it will probably ultimately win me over. I feel it, like you'll come around. There's fast. something... It, I, I One of my favorite music pleasures is I love a good... Like, I love the interplay between an acoustic guitar and an electric guitar. I love songs that have like a good, steady acoustic rhythm and just meandering electric guitars. Yeah, this has got that. So I think that, got... That's why I like the Amazing so much, and mm-hmm. that's why this song's kind of hit me in the right way, that the studio version of it's hit me in the right way. I, I do like that kind of interplay. Yeah. Okay, so that that's going to do it for Amathora. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, come back on Friday. Um, We're going to keep talking about the sea. It's more nautical music. There you go, yeah. Um, uh, we'll take we'll take a, a tall ship, uh, hitch, hitch the sail. That's a nautical term, sure. right? Uh, We're going to set sail to the... Port of Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, oh. AKA Amsterdam. One one last quick thing. I feel like I should plug this thing. So if you happen to be listening to this in semi-real time, so we've recently uh, procured tickets to, there's this amazing David Bowie tribute, and I'm sure it's touring all over the place, but it's coming to Boston April 5th, and now I feel like I can promote it since I already have tickets, not to worry about it selling out. Holy holy. Um, and it features two names that we have brought up so much in the early episodes. Um, Woody Woodmansey and Tony Visconti's uh, band, they are going to play mostly stuff from the 70s, um, which I'm more of a 70s Bowie than you, I believe. You're more 80s Bowie, if I recall. You're you're all Bowie. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think that's fair. That's fair. So suppose they're going to do mostly stuff from that era, and I guess they're going to play all of the man who sold the world. That's great. So if you don't have tickets to this yet, and there are still tickets available, and you need to go because it, it's going to be amazing and if you're someone like me who never got to see David Bowie live when he was alive this is it man this is this is the closest you're going to come to the real McCoy so April 5th House of Blues um, tickets were 25 bucks it's way cheaper than most shows way cheaper than I thought it was going to be I was shocked and so yeah if you see us there come and say hello yeah we'll, um, we'll be the guys walking around going did somebody say David Bowie podcast <laughs> Yeah, so it's luckily there are still there are still tickets. I believe there are still tickets available, which is great. So we hope to see you there. Yes, everybody should go to this show. Um, All five of you, (laughs) (laughs) and us too. It's gonna be more because the five of you are gonna tell your friends how much fun you're having listening to this podcast. Yeah, that's gonna be a blast. We said the name of the band, right? Holy, holy, holy. holy. Uh, till then, till Friday, yeah, we got Amsterdam, Port of Amsterdam. We'll see you in Amsterdam. We will see you in Amsterdam on Friday. This is Thomas. And I'm Travis. And you are the listener. Goodbye. Oh no, don't say it's true. They got a